0: Among the many questions raised by Donald Trump's tough talk towards North Korea, whether the U.S. president is at risk of violating international law. Trump vowed on Wednesday to meet any additional threats by North Korea with fire and fury. He followed up this morning with a tweet saying, quote, military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded. Trump's statement suggested the possibility he might order a preemptive strike at North Korea. Today on the show, we're gonna talk about whether that is permissible under international law. Our guests are two experts on the subject. Jens David Olin is a professor at Cornell University Law School, and Kevin John Heller is a professor at the University of London. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Jens, before we get into the specifics of North Korea and what Donald Trump has said and what he might do, just uh, give us the, the, the broad overview of international law. When can one country attack another under under international law?
1: Uh, The basic rules are pretty simple on that, but they're difficult to apply in concrete situations. The UN Charter says that there are really only two circumstances when when force is justified under international law. The first is when the Security Council authorizes the military force. So they would pass a resolution telling one country uh, or a group of countries that they're allowed to use military force. And the the second circumstance is is self-defense. So um, if one state has been attacked or is um, facing an imminent attack, they're entitled to use defensive force to, to repel the assault. And those really are the only Two circumstances when force is appropriate under international law.
0: So, Kevin, as we sit here right now, obviously this is a, a, a moving target, and things things can change. But as we sit here right now, how close is North Korea to being that sort of imminent threat that Jens was talking about?
2: they don't seem to be particularly close to it i mean i i suppose we would need to kind of distinguish between their kind of ongoing bluster about you know uh reducing the continental united states to ashes which i don't think anybody takes seriously at this point i mean they certainly are on the road to nuclear weapons but i don't think anyone even the most pessimistic thinks they're that close would be to distinguish that then from kind of their threats against Guam. They do seem to have been making much more concrete plans for an attack on U.S. military installations there. Um, And so, again, I don't think they've come close to the level of an imminent attack. I think they said a few days we might attack Guam, um, but certainly closer in that context than in the the much more uh, blustery claims.
0: Jens, is that your your analysis as well? And and if so, uh, would it change if say they carried out that threat to launch missiles that landed near Guam? Would that be enough to to say okay, now now we've gotten to the point of imminence?
1: That does change the situation, um, but the, the details matter a lot, I think. Um, you know, words <clears throat> um, by themselves, just kind of the blustery talk and threatening the United States with an attack—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hard to define that as an imminent attack because countries are, um, you know, engaging in those types of blustery threats uh, all the time. But if they were to actually launch missiles uh, towards. Guam then you'd have the kind of you know tangible manifest um, movement of military arms in a, in a way that could be defined as a um, uh, as an imminent attack or actually an ongoing attack now I think it would matter where the missiles actually land um, so the the North Koreans I think have Um, articulated a desire to launch missiles that would land in the ocean outside of Guam, but outside of Guam's territorial waters, basically in international water. Um, If they were to do that, it would be a very provocative threat. But would that constitute an uh, an imminent attack or an attack against Guam? Well, if the missile landed in international waters, I think North Korea could say, look, this is a, um, a test meant to sort of demonstrate our, our resolve, but we haven't really done anything to implicate the, the, the sovereignty of the United States or Guam. However, if that missile were to land within the territorial waters of Guam, either by design, because that's what North Korea intended, or because it accidentally fell within the territorial waters of Guam, then at that point, I think you do have an attack and the United States would be justified in responding, though I think that response would have to be proportional
0: um, let me get to that issue of proportionality in, in a second but I want to back up just for a second K- Kevin w- w- I, I just launched into international law like mm-hmm. it was some written in some book somewhere w- what's the source of all this international law that we're talking about where does it come from
2: it comes from two basic, uh, er, two basic places. Uh, Jens has already mentioned the first one. It comes from the UN Charter and Article 2-4 of the UN Charter prohibits the, the use or threat of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of another state. And then you have Article 51 of the UN Charter, which inscribes the right of self-defense. But of course, those provisions are very vague. They, they don't cover every situation. They don't define all of the terms. And so then we also have to rely on customary international law, which is essentially unwritten international law that uh, rules that states have said they believe to be legally obligatory. And and most of what we're talking about here in terms of the right of self-defense is not fleshed out by the U.N. charter. It really is fleshed out by state practice and the statements of states as to what they believe is legally obligatory.
0: Donald Trump didn't hold back this week when asked about the aggressive talk coming from North Korea.
1: North Korea. Best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen.
0: Trump followed up this morning with a tweet that said military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded. Would a preemptive attack on North Korea and its growing nuclear threat violate international law? We're talking about that with Jens David Olin of Cornell University Law School and Kevin John Heller of the University of London. Um, Jens, uh, the the nuclear threat from North Korea is, of course, a a major factor in this this dispute. What under international law is the United States supposed to do with this threat that seems to be growing? Right now, North Korea can't strike Washington with a nuclear missile, but if we wait a certain amount of time, uh, they're going to be able to. Is there some uh, way in which the U.S. can say, uh, look, we need to get in there now uh, before that threat gets even
1: worse? It's you know, it's a contested point under international law, whether or not you can use uh, military force to degrade an enemy's capacity. To develop some kind of military technology that could be used against you in the in the future, um, there are two sort of historical precedents that that come to mind on this, and and both were were very controversial. The first is uh, when George W. Bush, um, you know, took the United States into into Iraq, and there were, there were multiple arguments for for going into Iraq, but at least one of them was to. Dispossess Saddam Hussein of the capacity to develop weapons of of mass destruction, and I think that that, that argument was was very controversial under under international law. The, the the second historical precedent, which is which is perhaps more directly on point, is when <clears throat> Israel sent some fighter jets uh, into Iraq um, to destroy a nuclear reactor in in Osirak. Um, and uh, successfully destroyed this this nuclear reactor. And at the time, uh, most countries were, you know, condemned Israel um, pretty resoundly for, um, you know, using military force too quickly to prevent another country from developing military technology. And somewhat um, ironically, the United States um, also criticized Israel. Um, so I think it would be a little bit difficult for the United States to to justify a kind of preventive. Strike meant to, you know, simply deny um, uh, the North Korean regime uh, nuclear technology. Now, of course, North Korea is under an obligation from the, the United Nations not to be developing nuclear technology, and and of course, nucle- um, North Korea has ignored uh, those rules that have been set by by the United Nations. Um, but whether the United States could just sort of go in with its military and, and and bomb North Korea just to get it to comply with those obligations, I think, is is very much an open question.
0: Yeah, Kevin, how much does that U.N. Uh, position help the U.S. here? Um, obviously, there's not an, an authorization, uh, direct authorization for the use of force. But uh, does the fact that the U.N. has taken a position against uh, North Korea developing nuclear weapons help the U.S.'s case here for a preemptive strike?
2: No, I don't think it helps it at all. Um, the Security Council is essentially doing one of the things the Security Council can do, and that's sanction North Korea and, and try to make it extremely economically painful for North Korea to develop nuclear weapons. But they certainly haven't authorized the United States to use force against North Korea, which they could do if it wanted to. Um And so really the fact that the the UN is going a kind of nonviolent route in dealing with North Korea really weakens the case for the the United States to do it. Now, The fact that the United Nations hasn't blessed military force in no way deprives the United States of its right to act in self-defense. But again, a preemptive strike is not the kind of strike that is self-defense at all. It's not against an imminent threat. It's against a future hypothetical, perhaps evolving threat. So there still is a very large cloud of illegality hanging over a preventive strike like that.
0: Jens, why does all of this matter? Uh, is really kind of a big, question, big picture question about international law. You know, you violate domestic law, you can be sued, you can, you can, you can uh, be put in jail if it's criminal. Uh, why does it matter whether or not the U.S. is in compliance with international law?
1: Well, I think there's, there's two two answers to that, at least two answers to that question. There, there's many possible consequences, but I'll just, I'll highlight two that, that we might care about. One is very kind of large and and abstract, and one is much more specific and, and lawyerly. Uh, the large abstract point is that um, you know, we live by the rules of, of international law, and, and those rules constrain the United States, but they also protect the United States. Um, and when you think about the fact that we're entering an age where more and more countries are going to be developing um, aggressive military technologies, whether that is nuclear weapons or um, chemical weapons, cyber attack capabilities, right? All of these technical, technological advances are giving smaller countries greater capacity to use military force. And they're going to be able to use military force against the United States and our allies. And so, in that sense, international law is not just a constraint on the United States. It's a it's a it's a friendly um, uh, legal regime that will protect the interests of the United States as more states have the have the power in the future to to attack the United States. The the, the second point, which is a much more lawyerly point, is that the president of the United States, Donald Trump. Um, is required under the Constitution to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And one of those laws is a treaty called the United Nations Charter. And so there's this kind of connection between international law and domestic law. And that U.N. charter that we've been talking about is a treaty and treaties are um, incorporated into, into federal law. So there's a sense in which the president is required under U.S. constitutional law to, um, uh, to ensure that we stay in compliance. compliance. Compliance with our treaty obligations.
0: We're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to our guests, Jens David Olin of Cornell University and Kevin John Heller of the University of London, talking about international law and the North Korea issue. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, we'll discuss the growing world of litigation finance. Is it promoting justice or encouraging frivolous lawsuits?